If you find value in the show, please share it and review it. If you want to support the show even further, you can leave a tip or set up recurring support via the links in the show notes or on the website. Thanks again for listening, sharing, and learning with me. Now, on to this week's show. Welcome, welcome. This is Talking to the Internet. It is my privilege and honor to have Shelly Brisbane on the show. Shelly is the web editor and producer at the Texas Standard. Uh, she writes about technology, classic film, and accessibility. She has a book, iOS Access for All, uh, that she updates regularly. Uh, she podcasts on the Parallel podcast on uh, Relay FM, and she also does a, a show called Lions, Towers, and Shields on the Incomparable Network. Shelly, welcome to the show. Hey, Corey, thanks for having me. So, Shelly, we start off in the most general way possible, right? Because that's, in my mind, the most interesting way possible. Can you tell us your story? Tell us how you got to deciding to talk to the internet or communicate to people through the internet. So I was a journalist before there was an internet, so my native language was to write. And in back in the days when I started, one wrote for paper, and as the internet became a thing, and I kind of remember when that happened in my life, the words that I was already making started appearing on the internet. And then as it moved toward supremacy or primacy, I started moving my words toward internet first and then eventually began literally talking on the internet as opposed to, well, in addition to writing, because I still do both of those things. And I think that's one of my favorite things about the internet is that I actually get to use my voice on it, whereas before I was limited to paper. So, so what, what is it about? So this is a common thread that I didn't expect in um, the guests on the show is, you know, had some sort of journalism communication type of a background. So what is it about, what got you interested in wanting to get your ideas, thoughts out there, commentary, like what made you want to do that? Well, first of all, I was good at it. I was a decent writer and I always pursued writing, even if it was in uh, the interest of something else, because I cared about things like politics and I cared about things like technology. And I always found out, found that the way toward those topics was writing. You know, I, if you say, I'm interested in film, some people are going to make movies. Some people are going to go see a lot of them. I My natural inclination would be, I'm going to write or talk about them. So it started there. And so I pursued a journalism degree and shortly thereafter, uh, it was a it was a generalist degree, and so I thought, well, I'll probably be in you know small town Texas reporting on floods and fires and things. But I got really interested in technology, and so my curiosity led me to learn everything I could about certain aspects of technology. And then I looked around, and I had all these skills, and I was like, well, wait, I'm under underemployed. What should I do? I know. Let's write about technology, and that's kind of how that started. So, so what got you to, or I guess, what was your first foray going from print to digital? Like, what was the first thing you did that um, you kind of owned going from print to digital? Um, well, there's two ways to answer that, because ironically, the first internet-related thing I did was in print. Uh, in 1994, uh, we at Mac User Magazine, where I worked at the time, were trying to figure out this whole internet worldwide web thing. And we decided that we were going to produce an internet map. And the format of that map was literally like an old style folded road map. And so we got 
designers to put that together and we linked to a bunch of and I say linked it's on paper we talked about a, we wrote about a bunch of sites and we made this really cool looking internet map that was a premium for uh, our subscribers and so I, I still have those things in my drawer somewhere and so I, I like to say that my first foray onto the internet was actually on the printed page and thereafter as we were figuring out what to do digitally at the magazine Several of us, including me, started writing what I guess you'd call them blogs eventually, but at the time they were sort of columns. And we would write them the way you might write a magazine column, but you didn't go through the sort of elongated editing and design and production process. We wrote them and we pushed publish and they were on the internet. <laughs> and that was probably in 1995 and it was, it was crazy. And then I did, I mean, just really quickly, like I did some, just because I just remembered it now, it's funny, like all these things you forget, but... I, at the, at the time in the mid-90s, was really interested in uh, folk and Americana music, and I was also homesick for my home, Texas. I was living in California at the time, and I got together with a group of people that were interested in the same singer-songwriters and performers, and we had a mailing list. It was an email list, and I ended up building a website in support of that mailing list, all in, like, hand-cranked HTML, and so that's probably the first thing that I owned that had my name on it that I wasn't being paid to create. And, um, you know, it was basically just the archives of the mailing list. But that's how I learned to do HTML. So so you're, how, how different is that from what you do daily at Texas Standard? Like, what are you, what are you doing it's, daily there? <laughs> it's surprisingly similar, actually. It's funny because I I loved radio, always loved it. And my mom always used to say to me, you should go work at the radio station. Like, just go down there and ask them for a job because they'll totally give you one. And I didn't have the, the background to make that happen, or I didn't have the confidence. I'm not sure which. So I never worked in radio. But I'd always loved it. And then, as I'm sure we'll get to, I got into podcasting and did that. For, I've done that for many, many years. And so when I saw an opportunity to work in public radio, I took it. And the first thing that was out there was being the web editor. So I'm responsible for putting out all the web content that is based on the radio show that we make. I also make a lot of radio segments, but my fundamental job and the reason they hired me was you take this terrible website we have and make it better. And so that's what I did. And that's not too dissimilar except for the tools that we use from what I was doing back when I started on the internet. Yeah, so so that's interesting to me. So what I want to what I want to roll into is Okay, so you're doing this, right? And this is your your real job, jobby job, I assume. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yeah. I call it my day job or my jobby job, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so like you're doing this and, and you know, and, and then you decide, ah, oh, this isn't enough. I need more to do. Right. So I'm gonna start No, 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 no. You have it backwards, uh, okay. but <laughs> Okay. No, so I as I say, I'd always loved audio, loved radio. And so I started podcasting in two thousand four. I've been doing this job for three years. So that just gives you Maybe you have more questions, but that gives you some sense of the order these things happen to. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so so get us like tell us that part of the story too. So sure. So your your journalism get us to all of the ways that you communicate because I mean I read your I read your little intro there and you've done a lot of a lot of different types of talking on the internet, right? Like get us through yeah. that story. How to you know weave us through there? So I having been an editor at. Mac user for a number of years. I then come home to Texas, partly because I'm homesick. 
and I start doing a lot of writing of books, actual paper printed books. At the same time, I'm freelancing for a lot of technology publications, which involves both stuff that's for print and for the internet. And I guess the common thread, and it goes back to when I got my first Mac in 1986 and taught myself how to use it, was I was always just super curious. And I was also curious in the way that you are curious privately. You're like, I don't know how this works, but I don't really want to admit I don't know how it works. So I'm going <laughs> to go in my little closet and I'm going to learn. And when I come out, people are going to be like, oh my God, how do you know all these things? And Because I've been sitting there for two weeks teaching myself or however long it took. And podcasting was that way too. When I heard of this thing called podcasting in 2004, 2004 it had just gotten that name. I said, oh, that's like radio, but with RSS feeds. Yes. How do you do that? And so I got some rudimentary equipment. I read everything I could read. And then I did some podcasts, which I admitted at the time even, were really terrible and which were basically talking about, I'm teaching myself how to podcast. I'm teaching myself how to make an RSS feed that supports audio. And that was interesting to me for a couple of months. I went to Macworld Expo the next year. I interviewed people because I knew how to do that. I said, what What do I all, I was trying to leverage all the technology knowledge I had as well as all the contacts I had, but I didn't know what I wanted to make, which is why my first show was called Shelley's Podcast. I had no idea what I was going to make. I just knew I wanted a thing and it was a foothold. It was like, I'm going to plant the flag, but I really don't know what the flag's going to have on it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I just taught myself and I Went through several years doing that show, mostly, well, com- almost entirely as a hobbyist, although I joined a couple podcast networks. I made a lot of connections. I found the early podcasting community, which was an amazing group of people, all of whom were like learning to do this as a hobby and who were just super fast. And, you know, it was the kind of thing where somebody would buy a new microphone and the whole new thread on the forum would start and they'd be talking about it. And it was just like excitement and and earnestness about it okay i have to and i, have, I loved I have it. To interrupt it was so you. great i have yeah. to interrupt you so i'm sorry but this is so intriguing so help me understand like put me in that forum um what is what's the vision in that forum like what is the motivation in that forum is it just a bunch of and hopefully this doesn't come across negatively but it, like is it just a bunch of geeky people who really want to nerd out on whatever they want to talk about and they're figuring it out and they're they're doing those type of thing things which is awesome and great or is it a we want to take over the radio. Like we want to be the next radio and, and either either you either get on the ship or it's going to sail right past you. Like or somewhere in between. Like what what was the what was the thought process then? There was some of each plus there were people who wanted to monetize even from really early on. There were guys and they were mostly guys who were like insurance salesmen and marketing people uh. who were like how do I monetize before there was even anything to monetize. And then there were artists. So what was interesting was that there was this incredible mix of people and I I hung out with people who were kind of nerds who were buying their first microphone and who were geeking out and I was kind of right along with them and then there were people I knew from the technology world who had discovered podcasting and then there were as I say there were a few artists there were the monetizers we didn't hang out with much because they didn't enjoy it as much as we did and they didn't have a sense of humor and yeah, they didn't pay much of it yeah pretty much yeah. and and it was and so people podcasted about stuff that sounds really mundane to be honest i mean there was a the group i hung out with called the couple casters and it was usually a, a part a pair a husband and wife who would sit down and talk about their lives 
And weirdly, I found myself doing that because at some point I invited my husband on the show and he became the hit of the show because he's <laughs> he's just like so dry and earnest about things. I mean, I'm like trying to entertain people really hard and they're like, what's Frank up to? Let's talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was this sort of, I think, discovery. And th- first we discovered podcasting. We loved it. It was fun. It was nerdy. And then we discovered the community, which is how the couple casters and the podcast outlaws and the tripod network and all of these little organizations of people who I have in various ways continued to encounter in the course of my life, which is, is very joyful to me. But all these people just got together for fun. And the less concerned they were about making money, the more I enjoyed their company. And there were some people who actually did go on and do podcasts that got sponsors or Patreons, their Patreon support. But most of them, a lot of them stopped. A lot of them, like me, kept doing it without too much regard for money, but we would change what we were doing. Like I did a podcast about uh, App Store uh, app reviews. It was called App Store Pundit. And I did various other tech podcasts because I found out people were interested. In, I didn't even really want a podcast about technology. I found it boring to talk about technology. I found it much more interesting to write about it. I like to talk about podcasting. I like to talk about the weird house remodel stories that my husband had because I interviewed him. <laughs> like I would, It was much more interesting for me to sit there and say, so Frank, tell me, why did the roof fall in the other day? Why did that happen? And he would answer it. And that was super entertaining. And then I, you know, I would develop segments like I'm I'm a, a fan of uh, mixology and cocktails. So I had segments about cocktails. I had segments about my animals. So I didn't have any idea that I was going to get discovered and end up on radio. But I did the show I wanted to do and that I enjoyed. And I think that's why Shelley's podcast never got changed as the name, because every time I wanted to change it, it was like, but that's kind of what it is. It's yeah. just me talking about stuff. And I had a few hundred listeners, which is, you know, not exciting. But it's a few hundred more people than were listening to me otherwise. So it was pretty fun. I enjoyed mm-hmm. it a great mm-hmm. deal. Yeah. So how did you how did you engage with the with the community? Like was there was there any engagement? Um, you mean the community of listeners yeah. and fellow podcasters? Yeah, with, the, oh, with listeners, a couple hundred well, people. Back in the day, uh feedback lines were all the rage. So you had a, um, uh, what was it called? I can't remember the name of the original one, but eventually Google Voice Lines. But there was there was a company that, K7, that was it. So so you would give your phone number out and people would call. And they'd be, Shelley, that thing you said on the show last week. Um, and so you'd have feedback. And then we had, I mean, at, at some point we had Twitter and Facebook and all the things that we still have today in more primitive forms. But mostly it was... The, the interaction with the listeners I didn't know was mostly through audio feedback. They would, you, you'd call the K7 line, your voice would be recorded, I would download an MP3, I would clean it up because they usually sounded terrible, yeah. and then you'd put it on the show. And then you could open your blog up for comments if you wanted to. And I would do, you know, silly things and try and encourage feedback. And I did special shows, and I invited people I knew to come on the show and be like a guest co-host and and things like that. And so I, it is true that the relationship between the amount of feedback I got and the amount of enjoyment I had doing the podcast was, was quite, uh, there was quite a high correlation. And then at times when I wouldn't get feedback, it wasn't that I didn't think anybody was listening anymore. I just felt like, wait, is it getting stale? Do I need to change my content? And that was kind of a hard thing to figure out. Okay. So when do, when do the books, like, I mean, you're writing, I know you've written books for a long, long time, but like, how do, how does that play in 
to how do you balance it? I guess that's that's the I guess that's the question I'm trying to ask, right? Because you have full time job, you have I'm writing books, and you have I'm making audio content. Like that's a lot of stuff to do, and that's a lot of um, words, and I'm putting that in quotes, right? Like that's a lot of things to put out there on the internet. So how do you balance it all? Well, in those days, I would my my job was as a freelance writer, and so those books were my job. Okay. So I was writing. I was still writing books for print. And then, well, I I did get a podcasting job because, and I I I felt sort of proud of myself for being one of the few because back then there were a lot of people who did kind of want that. There was a short-lived magazine called Blogger and Podcaster, and I edited that for about a year and a half, and I worked from home, and so it was my job to pay attention to podcasting and to go to podcasting conferences and things like that, which I was doing anyway. So it was kind of a dream job until the company went bankrupt and the owner, you know, skipped out without paying me. What he owed me, but <laughs> other than that, it was a great job. Yeah. And the magazine looked good, and I enjoyed it immensely. But so I was doing all picking up all sorts of freelance gigs. I considered writing a podcast book at one time, but a couple people got in line ahead of me, and I just didn't end up doing it. And so I was writing. I've never really written about audio. All the books I've written have been about technology, whether it be the Macintosh or web development or networking and eventually accessibility. So those books and other freelance work I had for magazines and then the blogger and podcaster gig were kind of how I was making money during the time I was podcasting. So if you were going to write a podcasting book, what angle would you take on it? See, that's the thing. What I'm interested in, is, and it's not the thing you should be interested in because nowadays it's much easier than it used to be to assemble a podcasting rig. But I'm a, I'm interested in the technical side of it. Like, okay. how do you do it? How do you get assemble the gear? How do you do it either inexpensively or if you have a little more money? You know, how do you up your game? How do you set your settings? How do you do post-production? And I probably should be interested in marketing. When I was doing Blogger and Podcaster, some of the articles that I enjoyed the most were when I asked people how they did the performance aspect of podcasting. In other words, you have to have energy. You have to be funny or witty or at least, you know, vaguely entertaining. How do people do that? And I was interested in that. I never thought I had the skill or the knowledge to write a book on that subject But that's the stuff I liked to ask people about. I didn't like to ask them about their monetization. I didn't like to ask them about how many listeners they had. But I wanted to know how they made themselves sound in such a way that other people wanted to hear their voices. Yeah. See, and and that's 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 awesome because I want nothing to do with that. Like I want to (laughs) read. I want to read your book, and I want (laughs) to listen to people talk about that. Right. Like because I want to know that I want the knowledge, but creating that I could care less about creating that. What I want to do is I want to do exactly what I'm doing is talking to people about why they do the things they do and how they got there. And it's like, um, you know, the the human side. So that's that's it's so cool how how different people you know, grab onto different, different things. So let's roll right into accessibility, right? Like how did you get into, you know, writing and talking about accessibility? So I have a visual impairment, um, born with it, but I had never used that in my work. In fact, I had always been very purposeful. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people who have disabilities choose to, or are forced to make their careers in something to do with disability and accessibility, because to be honest, it's it's a hard world out there, and a lot of folks don't uh, get jobs if they're disabled because for, for one reason or another. And I always was interested in making my life outside 
disability and accessibility because I just wasn't interested. I was not interested in being a rehab person or a trainer or doing any of the things that are related to that kind, related to, to disability. And that was working pretty well for me for, for quite some time. And then there was a point that seemed to correspond with when it was harder to publish print books because, hey, the internet and, hey, Kindles and uh, iPads and all the other ways we can read books electronically. There's a point that corresponded with that where I had to sort of reassess what do I want to do with my working life. And I said, you know, you've never written about anything to do with accessibility. And the tools are so much better for accessibility now than they used to be on the iPhone, on the Mac, on Windows, certainly. What Maybe I can go and figure this out. And I wasn't using this technology. This is kind of a secret I don't always tell my friends in the accessibility <laughs> community. Okay. I sort of hacked my own accessibility. I wasn't using screen readers, voiceover, and things like that. So I had to teach myself. It was another one of those things where it's like, you know what? I guess I better learn how to do this and figure out whether I'm competent to write a book that people who need this technology would want to read. And so I did that. I did my whole thing of like, let's go in the closet and learn it for a while. But I also, and this is where the, the relevance of the podcasting experience for me in this case was, I said, you know what you need to do is go to the best conference you can to do with technology and accessibility, meet people, find out what resources already exist and where your niche is, where, you, where, where something is missing that you might could glom onto. And so I did that. And in the course of doing it, I, I essentially interviewed people. I said, look, I, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I want to write a book about accessibility on iOS. I had decided I wanted to, to write about how accessible the iPhone and the iPad were because I had a long background writing about Apple stuff. And I had used those technologies more than I had used others. And I perceived that there was a lack of good, up-to-date resources. Okay, okay. And so that turned out to be right. And so I met a lot of people, and they said yeah, you should probably do that. And what I realized once I started writing the book was, wait, I'm I'm a pretty good writer. I've been doing this for a long time. I know how to write a book. The part I need to learn is all the details of accessibility and like what people are wanting to learn from me. So that's kind of how I did that. And in the course of doing that, I met people in the accessibility podcast space who have since become friends and collaborators with me. So it's just like being in the right place, you end up meeting the people you're supposed to meet. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how many times I hear folks talk about um, doing interesting, good quality work or building interesting and good, you know, high quality skills, and then you blend that together. You know, throw that in a blender with meeting people, right, and meeting different kinds of people, and the next thing you know, there's this idea that comes out or this project that comes out, right, and it's partially you were you were interested in it. It's partially you were at the right place at the right time. It's partially you had the right skills, but it's it's ne it's hardly ever, I shouldn't say never, it's hardly ever just like one thing, like, oh, I'm gonna do this and put my plant like my stake in the ground kind of a kind of a situation. So that's that's a cool story to hear um as well. Tell us about some of the so you we talked about the book, right? What about parallel? Well, I had once I got engaged in the accessibility community, I, I always see communities sometimes who who I believe are unaware of one another. And that irritates me because I feel like as much as I love communities that I've been a part of, I hate the idea that they're so insular and that there's one group of voices that everybody sort of listens to and knows. And the more involved I got with accessibility, the more I realized that there was this parallel, using that word on purpose, 
a system of accessibility podcasts and writers and conferences and blogs and books and all these things that existed with really high levels of knowledge about accessibility and also about mainstream stuff because all these folks were just as interested in how the new iPhone works or what the new operating system for Windows or Mac does. But they were listening to all the mainstream podcasts and reading all the mainstream tech sites. But they were never interviewed. There was never like any cross-pollination between the mainstream tech sites and podcasts and the accessibility world. And it irritated me because I knew people in both. And I thought the mainstream folks who said they cared about accessibility were really paying lip service. I felt like they were saying, oh, isn't it great that Apple has such good accessibility? Moving on, next topic. They had no detailed, substantive interest in how accessibility worked, how the features worked, whether there was a a qualitative benefit to one system of accessibility versus another. I get really passionate about this, which is why I knew it was a good idea for a podcast. So the, the idea of parallel is that I bring people together who probably don't know each other. It doesn't matter if they know each other on a personal level, but they're from different worlds. So I, if I do a show about what's coming up in the next release of Android, I want a good person who can talk about Android from a mainstream point of view. But then I want the best person I know in accessibility who is also an Android user and expert to come and talk about it. And I want to talk about technology in general, and then I want to get to the accessibility part. The tagline of the show is Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. And so the idea of the show initially was we're going to have a talk that's interesting. We're going to bring these accessibility-related voices into the mainstream. We're not just going to say, you know, pay lip service and marginalize them. And I'm not going to just do a podcast for them. I'm going to do a podcast that everybody can be interested in. If they have, if they really care about accessibility, they should be listening to my show because I'm not just talking about accessibility on its own. I'm talking about technology, but I'm also incorporating accessibility in a way that others aren't. So that's how Parallel started. Yeah, that's, that's, all. that's great the way you identify the gap and from at least listening to you talk about it it's like laser focused like okay there is a there's a there's a hole here i'm gonna fill that hole right and here's the way i'm gonna fill that hole and and um that focus is just uh inspiring right like it's it's like wow that you know it's like if i go if only i can find that that focus in everything and everything that i do um can you talk about how or why you chose to put it on relay fm I'd been doing the show for a while, and I'll be really honest, and I'm not even sure the Relay folks know this, so hi, Stephen, Mike, everybody. Uh, <laughs> one of the points of contention I had with a lot of the really well-known mainstream folks in the tech world was this whole business of giving lip service to accessibility. And, and I know a lot of these people personally and have for many years, and I know them to be good, honorable folk who want everybody to have as much access as is possible to technology. They want the right things, but they're not really interested in the details. And I became aware that that was an issue on Relay. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I also separately have known Jason Snell, who's quite well known on Relay for years because he and I worked together at MacUser. And I had thought for a long time, and it was much less about I have a podcast I'd like to get sponsorship, which was going to be something helpful from Relay. It was much more about if you guys are serious, if you guys really want accessibility to be part of the conversation instead instead of just being sort of a nicety, then you should let me on your network 
and you should let me, and frankly, you should let me mine your hosts for people that I can pose these questions to. You know, you should let me, you know, Jason or Mike or Steven or Marco should come on my show and should have to talk with somebody about accessibility in, in context. And so it felt like both an opportunity to amplify my own voice and an opportunity to make them sort of put their words where their mouth was. Uh, so I was really pleasantly surprised might be too strong a word because I had hopes, but when I first talked to them and had the conversation, I thought it would be, present me a proposal, we'll get back to you. Because they get a lot of submissions, and mm -hmm. I, I knew that. Mm -hmm. And I did present what I thought was a pretty good proposal, but it wasn't the sort of proposal where I said, here's the CPM, I can guarantee you, and blah, blah, blah. It was, here's my vision, here are some of the people I've had on the show in the past, you probably know them, here's, you know, here's, here's who, I, there's some of, here's who I know. I know the same people you know. You know I'm a real person, right? Right? So there was a little bit of that. But they got back to me fairly quickly and said, yeah, please join. And I did. And I have had the opportunity to have a lot of Relay hosts and Relay adjacent people. There are many Relay adjacent people uh, on my shows. And it's been successful in that in that way. See, and, and, and I love that because, you know, it, it's not a nefarious thing. Um that you know we you, you don't think about accessibility um it's not like the on the forefront of your of your brain all the time and and the reason i say this and the reason i know this is you know i, I teach um so i was teaching in high school um and the actually the in the dallas area and i i didn't i don't actively think about okay well can the students read what i'm writing like am i using a font that is actually legible am i speaking in a way that actually makes sense for the full range of student that I might have um, until I had two deaf students in my class, right? Well, I'm teaching physics and I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I do this? Like, how do I teach physics concepts to deaf students and especially the sound portion of it? And it was like one of those things that it wasn't that I intentionally didn't want to talk about that or like I intentionally didn't want to do it or do it well. It was a matter of like, that just wasn't something that was in my brain. So it's like, I love that you're, your goal was to say, hey, these two worlds exist. They need to talk more to each other. Here's a mechanism to talk more. And, and now Relay FM has, has your show. That, that's awesome. Because so much of the conversation about accessibility is really superficial. It doesn't help anybody. So knowing that a certain company makes accessible tech doesn't help you teach those deaf kids. It doesn't say, okay, okay, great. I know that this technology might be great for them, but what apps do I use? Uh, is is the technology that is advertised by this company who wants you to believe that they make great technology, <laughs> yeah, yeah. is it actually as good as advertised? How would you know that if you're a mainstream podcaster who only thinks about accessibility in terms of a box that's to be checked, which is what most people, the way most people think of it. And I still, like, I, it's not a battle that I feel like, oh, I'm on Relay, I've won, they get it, because I don't know that people who aren't focused on it get the extent to which when we talk about accessibility, we talk about it as an either or. It is or it isn't. We don't talk about the quality of accessibility, whereas in most other technology-related subjects, we're all about the nitty-gritty. Yeah, how how does yeah. the menu look? What color is it? Does it actually perform as advertised, or is this marketing speak? That's not a conversation that is had in the mainstream about 
features and accessibility. And if you look at, if you read a book or if you read a long, even overview of, say, an entire operating system that's from a mainstream perspective, accessibility is almost never mentioned. I mean, it's not that. No, it's not even that. It's not mentioned. The only reason that it gets mentioned is if there's a new feature. And so, and the reason is because people aren't qualified to write about it. And so, yeah, sure, they can hire me to do it. I'm happy to do that. But usually it ends up being a separate piece. Let's talk about accessibility as a feel-good moment. Let's not talk about it as a set of features that does or doesn't work, that is or isn't better than it was the last time. And so that's, you know, I and I feel like continuing to have that passion and continuing to point that out and, frankly, being on the network and talking to more people gives me a more courageous is the wrong word, but it gives me a more articulate focus than I once had because there's a way that you can just sort of get despairing about it and go, why don't these people understand? Yeah, But I think I've transcended that a little bit and I... Uh, you know, that's that's my vision for growing the show is to make the statements more bold and more uh, di- more difficult to ignore. Yeah. So so you have that form of a show around accessibility. Let's talk about, um, you know, what, what we might call lo- more long form audio um, where you're doing a uh, more produced. And tell me if I'm if I'm not doing you justice, but like 30, uh, the 36 seconds documentary that you did like can you tell us more about that sure so first of all 36 seconds is 37 minutes (laughs) (laughs) so that's just just for people who might want to be prepared but so so again you know back to ios accessibility which i've been writing about forever what happened was that when the iphone was introduced in 2007 it wasn't accessible to people with most disabilities and i am one of those because i couldn't read the screen it was too bright the print was the fonts were too small the phones themselves were very small So I, having been writing about Apple products for 20 years by that time, was quite completely locked out. I couldn't get it. Did you get an iPhone? No, I didn't because I can't use it. And I thought, obviously, that was really profound for me. It wasn't profound for anybody else necessarily, but it bothered me. So a couple of years later, Apple did add accessibility features to iOS, including a screen reader called VoiceOver and some features that make it easier to read the screen, including Zoom and big text and mono audio for folks with uh, 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 hearing disabilities. And they continued to add on to that accessibility suite. But 2009, which was the 10th anniversary, so 2019, when I made the documentary, is the 10th anniversary of that happening. And I had wanted to... Because I knew a lot of people, and again, through podcasting, I knew a lot of people who at the time were podcasting about it, blind podcasters who had shows who, when it was announced that the iPhone was accessible, lost their freaking minds. It was one of the (laughs) biggest events in many people's lives as users of technology. But again, if you asked most of the people in the mainstream you know, when did the iPhone become accessible? What's the most meaningful event in terms of accessibility in the iPhone? People are like, I, I have no idea. So when I researched it, I found out that it was even more awesome from a narrative perspective than I had even expected. Because when it was announced, you know, Apple does these big dog and pony show keynotes every mm-hmm. time they announce new stuff. And this was the 2009 keynote for the Worldwide Developers Conference. And Phil Schiller, who was the executive VP at Apple, was leading it. So very close to the end of this thing, he says, we've added accessibility. And he spends 36 seconds 
talking about the new accessibility features. That's all. And it's before he talks, is after he talks about Compass and before he talks about the fact that there's a, like a Nike app that you can add to your phone. So literally is all it was, 36 seconds. So nobody from that could know how, whether these features were any good or not. But I knew all these people who had podcasted. I had podcasted with most of them, or at least I knew them. And so they let me see their archives. And you can hear in their voices just this stunned amazement, this like, oh, my God, this is changing my world. This is changing my life. I mean, is that or is that not a good radio story? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So yeah. so I, I ended up deciding, you know, I'm, I'm working at, at Texas Standard, which is a statewide public radio show at this point. But there's no way they're going to let me put, I didn't know it was going to be 37 minutes, but I knew it was going to be longer than four and a half minutes, which is most of our segments. And there's no way they're going to let me put that on the air. And I, at the time, had been doing a lot more web than radio production. But I had also been doing all this podcasting. Like, I would literally go home from work and start podcasting. And I would tell people at work that, and like, wait a minute, you were just here all day and you're going to go podcast? And I said, yes. Yes, I am, because you don't let me on the radio enough. <laughs> <laughs> um so I just decided I'm going to make the kind of documentary I want to make. I'm going to do it with high-quality radio production, and I'm going to run it by people, but it's going to be my production as opposed to the way that you would do it if you were in, had the constraints of being on the radio. So I did. I hired a guy to do some of the fine audio production for me, another guy that he knew did some scoring for the project, which made it sound really good. I, mm -hmm. I wrote the script. I did all the voicing. I, I you know, produced it, basically. And I didn't know what I wanted to do other than I wanted people to hear the story. And I guess if I had my druthers, I might have liked it to be sure. But I realized, too, like in radio, in any storytelling, you have to have an arc. You can't just do what I just did, which is tell you a story, and then it ends. Like in 2009, they made it accessible. It's fine. We're done. I realized I had to, like, what's the backside of that? What happened next? And so the last third of the documentary or so is me talking to people about how accessibility on the iOS platform affected their lives, how both as developers and users it made a difference in what they were able to do. And I also wanted it to be, because I was coming from a perspective of a person with a disability, it had to be completely in, uh, unsentimental. It had to be completely without what we call inspiration porn, which is this whole notion of, oh, aren't those accessibility people awesome? Oh, my God, mm -hmm. all the things they can do with their phones. Spare me. That's just, just hate it. Just hate it. So I wanted it to be told with, I guess it's like the book in the sense that I was a professional writer, so I took something I was passionate about and applied the technical skill I had to make it what I wanted it to be, and the documentary was the same thing. And so, you know, I just released it on a, on a podcast feed and made a website for it and then put a bunch of the interviews I had done unedited out a little later as podcasts, and, and that was that's, that's 36seconds.org 36 is where you can so, find so, it. So help me understand, though, because you could have just as easily, and, I've, and people do this all the time, right? Like you could have just as easily had it been a special episode on Parallel. Right. And and you could have brought in, you know, some of those people that you interviewed in in the, you know, the documentary. Um, but instead, you did it with a significantly different level of production. Like, why? Like, why? Why did you want to go that extra mile? I will say even as say, why did you want to do so much more work? Because <laughs> I can only imagine how much more work that was to do that one 37 minute episode 
as opposed to just throwing it into the the normal stream of parallel. Because it, I I wanted that level. Uh, I wanted the story arc. I mean, it was just what what I'm talking about. And the thing that I really I knew this before, but I think being in in radio gave me this as a daily perspective. It needed to be a narrative. I could have, because I interviewed 10, 15 people. I could have said, all right, I'm going to run these interviews all as parallel episodes. If I did that, only the most hardcore listener would have come away at the end of parallel knowing the story I wanted them to know. They would have heard all those interviews and they go, oh, last week she talked to Marco Arment and he talked about being a developer. And this week she talked to Joshua Lioncourt and he talked about having an Apple II when he was a little blind kid. But if I had asked at the end of those episodes, what's my story, they wouldn't have been able to tell me. And I wouldn't have been able to incorporate Apple footage in the same way. And to be honest, you know, I, I can sit here and, and talk pretty well, but I, I do better when I write things down and commit them to tape and edit. And <laughs> that's what I learned from being in radio. It's storytelling is what it's about. Yeah, that's that's great. Wow, that, that, was, that was said so succinct, succinctly. That was... Wow. Practice. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cause I was like, oh, where, how's she going to answer this question? And wow. I mean, just tied a bow right on that. That was awesome. Um, okay. So move us to, um, your next topic of choice, right? Classic film. Oh, uh, so this is, this is all about like networking and community. And when you're on the out, I, I realize this cause I have felt this exact way. When you're on the outside of this, it is incredibly frustrating. When you are on the inside of this, it is life-changing and delightful and wonderful, and you can't believe that you get to do what you get to do. And what this is, is I've, I've loved classic movies, and by which I mean like old black and white Hollywood movies, for years and years. And I'm really nerdy about it. I know a lot about them. I collect them. I, a long time ago, did a podcast about them, very long time ago, back in 2006, I think. Uh, but I've never really had an outlet other than that, and I've never really... I've thought about classic film podcasts, but I've never really made it happen. And I was talking to Jason Snell, who runs The Incomparable at one point. And again, this was just like, and this really was, I'm going to throw it at the wall and see what happens. I had no expectation. I had no plan for a proposal. Because I know that The Incomparable is all about like comic books and science fiction and uh, a lot of things that I know very little about and that I have very little interest in to be honest i don't play mm -hmm. dungeons and dragons mm -hmm. online that kind of thing so i was always like well that's great that jason has that i know a lot of those people they're terrific but i never even thought of the incomparable as a place where classic movies would even be welcome and i at some point it, it was i'm not even sure why but i was just sitting actually I was at work one day and i saw jason on the relay slack and i direct messaged him and i said hey just wondering would incomparable ever be interested in a classic movie podcast and I'm like, all right, I'm going to leave Slack because I don't want to like sit there and wait for him to respond. <laughs> I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to ignore this for the rest of the day. And like 20 minutes later. I was say, how I long did you make it? How long did you make it? No, I, he was back before I was. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Which was amazing. And he's like, yeah, that would be awesome. And I was all ready with... And I know people from Classic Film Twitter, and I have four or five ideas for really semi-famous semi or well-known guest hosts. This is kind of my format. And he's like, you know what? We should throw it open to the incomparable. I bet there are several hosts, and he named them, that would love to be panelists with you. And before I knew it, I not only had a show, but I had half a dozen people who were excited about it who wanted to be on it with me. 
And that only happens because you're in the right place at the right time. So how is it going, right? Because this, this is a fairly new show. It launched, what, uh, 2020? February. End February. February. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so how's, it, how's it going? I've, it's great. I've published five episodes. The sixth one, actually, I'm supposed to publish it tomorrow. I might make it. I might not. I think I will. Uh, it's fun. Uh, what's, what's challenging is to figure out what movies other people want to talk about because I kind of know what what the format is is basically we start with a little bit of classic movie news what's new on streaming and DVD in the classic movie canon uh, what well not so much right now but what movie film festivals are happening are there books about class so it's news basically and then we take one movie and we chat about it for some part of an hour and so the challenge has been finding the movies that both I want to talk about and that the panelists uh, also are interested in. And I have sort of found that one of the sweet spots for this particular group of people is movies that are surprising in the sense that, oh my God, did they really do this in a black and white movie? And whether it's, you know, pre-code stuff that's that's surprisingly frank in terms of, you know, sexual content or whatever, or whether it's uh, just movies that are pro- more modern, like mov- movies that are more modern than you would expect seems to interest a lot of the folks in The Incomparable. Uh, but then there are also sometimes when you do movies that are sort of a little more sentimental and a little more sort of charming or who have actors that people like. So the challenge has been figuring out, because I'll throw out a thing that's a scheduling thing that says, you know, this is the movie we're going to talk about. It's some movie, movies people are quick to get on board and you get half a dozen panelists and other movies it's like one person who thinks it's an awesome <laughs> idea. Yeah. And uh, so I, it's too early to say that that's a challenge exactly, but it's kind of a, it's a little surprise. I didn't think choose, I didn't think I'd be choosing movies for other people as much as I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. So you have experience in talking to the internet in many forms. Um, you're, you run into somebody new. You know, and and they say, I know you do all this great work on the internet. Can you give me any advice? Like, what should what what's the first thing I should do, or what what are the first five things I should do? Because um, I want to get started in this in this field. Narrow down to what you want to talk about, and that could be a topic, it could be a style, it could be. You have to have enough focus that it first. And the reason you're doing that is not to make a show or a book or a thing that will sell. It's so that you can control your own creative impulses and direct them in ways that are meaningful and helpful to you. Because, I mean, I was interested in classic film forever, but I didn't know how to podcast about it. And I finally figured it out with some help. And that's okay. It's fine that I didn't do that 10 years ago because I had other outlets. But the first thing that you are focused on, the thing that you're focused on that you're good at and that you know a lot about or that you're passionate about is probably the thing that's going to be easiest for you to do confidently when you're a beginner. Okay, and then how do you how do you build a community? Because you you've mentioned <laughs> community, you, well, you've mentioned community quite a few times, right? And and I I can see as I'm thinking back on our conversation, I can see the the value that it's had, not even from a making good content, right? Because it's like that. I don't think that's the, a direct tangible, but it more from a you've been involved in these communities that have helped you stoke ideas and helped you think through things and, you know, encouraged you in different ways. Maybe I'm reading between the lines too much, but like, how do you find that community 
to to help push you forward. So there's two kinds of communities, one of which I've been pretty good at and one of which less so. And I'm good at finding communities of people who are creative and who are trying to do things that are at least adjacent to what I want to do. I'm I'm less good at throwing something out there and having thousands of people flock to what I'm doing. I mean, I wish I could do that stuff. So finding a community of people that want to do things that you do, it's a part of that for me, and, and this is sort of an analytical bet. Not everybody's this way. But when I decide I want to talk about or write about something, I learn all I can. Like I'm, you know, whether it's hiding in the closet and learning how to use a Mac or whether it's reading everything I can online or, or, or subscribing to half a dozen podcasts on a particular subject. That's, that's not the way everybody does it. But immersing myself in that community, finding out whose voices are interesting. The great thing about social media, which is not a phrase I use very often, but the great thing is <laughs> if I'm super interested in something, there's a Twitter for it. There's blind Twitter. There's classic film Twitter. There's car Twitter, if I was into that, whatever. And you can, you don't even have to talk. You can just listen for a while. Or you can talk and make a fool of yourself, whatever you want to do. Communities aren't necessarily always easy to get into, but they're easy to find. And then you figure out what your place is. Like classic film Twitter is kind of an interesting one. There's a really sort of robust, interesting group out there that talks about classic movies I have not been able to integrate myself into that community as much as I would like through false. Through, it's entirely my own fault. I haven't taken the time to do it. I know what I need to do. And in fact, now that I have this new show, it's kind of an impetus to do it because I want to promote the show and I also want to recruit potential panelists for it. But I know that I haven't tended that garden. I've watched it. I've paid attention to people who speak a lot and who say things that are interesting in that community. And I just haven't reached out and gone, hey, I like what you're doing. I'd love it if you check my show out. But that's kind of the next step. Like you find out who matters to you, who you find somebody to look up to. Even if you don't integrate yourself in the community right away, like who's doing something that you wish you were doing or who's doing something in a way that you think is just kind of amazing and kind of like kind of, you know, study what they do. And maybe you do it exactly that way. Maybe you don't. But I had people do that with me. Even when I was doing Shelley's podcast way back, I had people contact me who were new podcasters and who said, I really like what you do. And we became friends. And it was just like they did shows that were similar enough to mine that we cross-pollinated. And, and once those relationships started, they just sort of evolved naturally. And I met more people through them and they met more people through me. And, and sometimes in those days, it was more about going to live events like podcast conventions and conferences. But again, social media sort of gives you a few more shortcuts than we had back back in the day back in the day all right so can you give can you give me your biggest highlight um and it can be from any form of talking to the media or talking to the internet that you've that you've done can you give me your biggest highlight of talking to the internet maybe the documentary 36 seconds because it was something where i basically made a great big thing almost all by myself it came out mostly the way i wanted it to because there's always stuff you'd fix but you know, that's, that's it. That was, it was my vision. Like I came up with it. I wrote it. I executed it. I put it out in the world and people liked it. Wonderful. All right. So are you ready for the unlightning round? Sure. No lightnings. All right. Yes. So we, I've tried to do this as a lightning round. It doesn't work. People take, (laughs) they take way too long. So it's the unlightning round. Here we go. Um, let's get ready. Overall, what is your favorite content on the internet? Podcasts. 
you got to give me more specific. Oh God! Yeah, yeah. Give me a favorite show. Jeez. All right, podcast. I wasn't ready for that. I'm yeah, sorry. I know, I know. Hang this on. is why it's the unlikely. Ah, favorite. That's hard. Oh, that's so hard. And I want to pick up my phone, which I don't have with me, and look at them because there's so many. All right, I'm going to pick one because it's the first thing I listen to every morning. It's my friend Ken Ray, Mac OS Ken. It's a great podcast. Starts my day. And it's not about any pandemics, so. <laughs> there, you, there you go. Okay, so next thing, okay, your overall favorite personality on the internet. But I hate people. No, uh, <laughs> people are terrible. Community, yeah, right. I hate people. Oh, you know who I love is Molly Wood from uh, Marketplace Tech on uh-huh. uh, NPR. Okay. All right, a creator, show, or content that you think is on the rise that listeners of this show should definitely go and check out. Oh, that's an interesting one. It's got to be some of my friends on The Incomparable. Um, It's on the rise. Let's see. Grr. You know, I should have read all the way to the end of the show notes document. <laughs> no, 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 no. This isn't in the show notes document on purpose. Like, wait, wait nope. I don't remember that. I tell you about the unlightning round, but I don't tell but you what you the questions are. It. On the ride. Oh, see, I wish I had my phone so I could cheat. And 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 all mine are going to be podcast related. And I'm going to say at the afterward, I'm going to be like, oh my god, I forgot about this thing or that thing. Uh, on the rise that people should check out. Uh, let me think. Oh, that is super hard. And I and I'm somebody who I love to find that sort of stuff. I like to find somebody who. Can you tell I'm stalling? Yes, you can. Yes, yes, uh, yes, yes. You're doing you're doing a great job unlightening <laughs> this. There's no. It's like. 37 minutes in the unlightning round. Yes. Uh, <laughs> these things are sort of surprisingly related. Um, it is someone named Allison Pitt who does a show called Daily Star Trek News. And she's been doing the show about a year. And she's just got both a great news sense and a great personality. And she's just nerdy enough to keep me interested, but not so nerdy that I sort of lose my way in all of the Star Trek fandom. Good answer. Good answer. You you got there. You got. To, I you did. Got to it one. took yeah. me a while. The, the, my my opinion means nothing, but you got there. Like that was a good. <laughs> that was a good. Um, okay, so you're only allowed to watch watch or listen to one show, and you can listen to like the entire series. So it's like as they release new things, or you can go back and listen to old old episodes. But you're only allowed to listen to one show, forever in perpetuity. <laughs> what is the show that you pick? Okay, now I have to think about it logically because it would have to have music in it i don't listen to a lot of music shows but if i couldn't listen to anything else and it didn't have music that would suck uh so <laughs> how am i gonna how am i gonna thread this needle Corey? uh i don't know i, don't know. I mean no, i just ask the music. questions it's your job to answer them yeah that's really annoying how do you why, why do you do that i know how i could cheat i could just say National Public Radio, just tell Alexa to play NPR. I'll listen to it all day, every day. That is that is variety. a complete cheat. That's cheating. Mm-hmm. But I'll accept it. Oh, all I'll right. I'll accept it. Thank yes, God. All right. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen. I really, I mean, to, just to like be, be semi-serious for a moment, I have always been a fan of public radio. I admire what they do and the way they do it. And mm-hmm. that had a lot to do with attracting me toward an audio medium because I was like, oh, these, this is what I aspire to. I'm not sure I'm in their league, but if I listen to them, I can feel better about not only what I'm learning about the news and the world around me, but that, oh, that's, that's how it's done. That's how the yeah. experts do it. 
Yeah, I mean, I can, like you say public radio, and there is a distinct sound production, right? Like, it, it's in my head. Yeah. Like, I know I know exactly what it is, or right. at least what, what certain forms of it are. So, yeah, I, I get that. All right, so this is the last one. Okay, so I'm going to pigeonhole you, whether you like it or not, and I'm sorry if you don't like it. As the iOS accessibility expert, what is the, the accessibility feature, the accessibility um, tool that people may not know about, but they need to know about? Oh, that's the easiest one of all. Oh, God, I'm, yeah, I'm ready the last for you. One's, the last one's always the easy one because it's the expert question. You're <laughs> right. the expert in a thing, yeah. so I, I ask you that question. So there's a feature called Speak Screen, and this is actually one that you might use if you did not have accessibility needs, but what it does is allow you to have the contents of your screen read aloud to you. So a screen reader, everything you touch or everything you interact with is read. I don't use a screen reader on a daily basis because I have some vision and I can read the print on my screen. But sometimes I want an article from the web uh, or a book read to me. And with iOS, if you enable speak screen, you can invoke that with a gesture and you can have it read for as long as you want it to read to you. And the great thing about it is unlike voiceover, uh, again, a screen reader that kind of takes over your computer, if you're using speak screen, uh, you can go on and do other things with your device while you have it in your hand. It'll keep reading to you. So speak screen. It's great. You heard it here first. Speak screen. Shelly, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and, and teaching us a lot. Um, where can people find out more about you and the work that you do? So you can find me on Twitter at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. Got in really early. Uh, my website is brisbane.net, B-R-I-S-B-I-N.net, and it goes to all of the many, many other places that I uh, make things on the Internet. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Shelly. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Corey. Um, it was a blast. Folks, thanks for listening to Talking to the Internet. If you want to find out more about the show, you can go to talkingtotheinternet.com uh, or you can uh, check us out on Twitter at, at TTTI Podcast. So thanks, everybody. I appreciate learning with you and uh, see you next time. Bye-bye.